And so I think that we are going to see this shift towards these higher level cognitive capabilities, periods of intense focus followed by periods of real recovery are going to be essential for us to be able to do the work that can't be automated. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Welcome back to Human OS Radio. My name's Greg Potter and I'm hosting the show once again. Today I'm joined by James Hewitt. James has a particular interest in how we can achieve sustainable high performance without compromising our health in the process. In addition to his role as Chief Innovation Officer at Hints of Performance, James is a researcher at Loughborough University where he is working to understand how knowledge workers' lifestyle and work patterns influence their well-being and performance, as well as how the digitally disruptive work context influences these relationships. Tommy Wood kindly put us in touch after forwarding me a terrific talk that James gave at the Royal Institution earlier this year. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation. James, welcome to Human OS Radio. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be here. I'm going to start with a very important question. I fell onto mine, but do you ever still wear your bright purple Loughborough University sports science tracksuit? <laughs> It's locked away in a special place for very special occasions. But if there's ever an opportunity to bust out the African violet, as it's important that we know that's the official name of the colour, yeah, any opportunity, it's straight on. Moving on to less important matters, can you begin by defining what knowledge work is? That's a good question. Knowledge work, some would say, was originally a term that was coined by Peter Drucker. I often talk about knowledge work in the context of people who generate the majority of their value with their brain rather than their brawn. Or you could say that knowledge workers are workers whose main capital is their knowledge. And this phrase has been around for quite a long time. Peter Drucker was an incredible management theorist. He talked about this back in 1959 in a book called Landmarks of Tomorrow, and it's worth digging into that. But to be honest, there still isn't really a succinct definition definition. It's still something that we're trying to define and certainly in terms of my research trying to measure. Focusing now on workplace performance, if people want to perform better to reach their job goals, it's useful to understand which traits influence success in the workplace. In general, traits such as intelligence and conscientiousness seem to be somewhat predictive of career success. What do we know about predictors of workplace performance in knowledge work specifically and might the most important traits change in years to come? That's a deep question. There's a lot of point to unpack there. One of the initial challenges with this is how do you actually define performance in knowledge work? There's some interesting self-rated measures of performance, which can be quite helpful. But at the same time, the experiments or the quasi-experiments to try and understand performance in knowledge work and what might influence it are often quite flawed. There was a study written up recently looking at the four-day work week, for example, and I think they did some kind of experiment in New Zealand. And I need to dig into it in a bit more detail, but it seems to be that the design was based on getting people to assess whether they felt more productive or some measure of how effective they were on a four-day week versus a five-day week. But the problem is it's, it's impossible to blind that. And if your employer came to you and said, we're going to do this experiment and see whether you feel better and more productive on a four-day week rather than a five-day week, you'd have to be very honest or stupid to suggest that a five-day week was better if the prospect of a four-day week was on the table in front of you. There is, in that question of what are the traits of high performance in knowledge work, first we need to think about performance. I and mean, one of the things that I look at to try and deal with that ambiguity is to suggest that if knowledge work is really around knowledge as capital and cognition and the function of our brain as the means to actually create that knowledge capital, then it probably makes sense to start by measuring some of these more 
fundamental cognitive capabilities and how they're influenced by factors in the environment or maybe predispositions. And you mentioned conscientiousness there, obviously in terms of personality research and the big five, there's been some interesting work there. But the focus of my research is more on lifestyle factors and also rhythms and shifts in things like stress and mood and how these influence or even could predict some of these more fundamental cognitive capabilities ranging from very basic things like simple reaction time as a global measure of cognitive function to slightly more complex cognitive capabilities like response inhibition which you might measure with a stroop task or a go no go task for example but then combining that with measures of self-report of performance as well to see whether there's a relationship with what we can measure objectively and what we perceive in terms of how well we're performing relative to normal but from the research that I've done so far and it's important to note these results are preliminary and I'm writing some of them up at the moment they're pretty consistent with what we see in the literature already and although this isn't a trait in terms of personality you know one of the characteristics of people who perform most sustainably is that they sleep adequately i.e. they sleep for seven to nine hours per night and interestingly we see quite a strong relationship between adequate sleep and more manageable levels of stress and also adequate sleep and cognitive performance particularly in those more complex cognitive capabilities such as inhibitory control but we also see this really interesting relationship between the length of the work day and cognitive performance and in terms of the work day I'm defining that as the interval between when you actually start doing real work which for many people it's minutes after they wake up when they're doing emails to when you actually finish work and we see this quite significant relationship between the length of the work day and some of these cognitive capabilities it seems like if you go over about 10 hours it seems that it starts to have some negative impacts in terms of the declines in cognitive performance that we see so there's these factors which are all interacting stress sleep workday length, influencing cognitive performance. There's other measures like burnout and resilience have a significant relationship. So I think this is a very, very long answer to your question. But in terms of the traits and the characteristics and the patterns of lifestyle that influence performance in knowledge work, I'd describe it as a cocktail, really. Very much as we see in a sporting context, there's a number of different variables which predict performance, but also interact with each other to help us achieve more sustainable high performance. And just to pick up on two things, you mentioned the performance decline over the course of the waking day. Is there any evidence that that carries over to the next day? And then secondly, what do you think about how the most important variables might change in years to come? That's a really good question. I'm pleased you picked up on it again. I got carried away on my little <laughs> spiel and forgot about that bit. To your first question, does it carry over? One of the strongest relationships that we see in terms of that carryover effect in decline is predicted by accumulating sleep debt in individuals and in groups where they accumulate a larger sleep debt during the working week, i.e. they're sleeping less than seven hours per night, we see that that is associated with greater declines in cognitive performance. It's really important to say that this is preliminary data. It's not been written up and peer reviewed yet. I'm not going to stick my stake in the ground and say this is true, but there's a relationship there. And also it is consistent with what we see in the literature. So I do think that we can end up in these vicious cycles where we don't sleep enough. This inadequate sleep is probably diminishing our inhibitory control, which is a really important cognitive capability for influencing managing our behaviour and helping us to stay on track with our high-level goals. And potentially, we're then less likely to make good decisions that will help us to improve our sleep or achieve adequate sleep. Perhaps we're even more likely to watch the extra episode on Netflix or drink the glass of wine or the extra glass of wine. And then our sleep is even more inadequate 
And then this affect compounds because we see these further declines in cognitive performance, which lead to further bad decisions about well-being. And it gets worse and worse and worse. In relation to that, what kind of capabilities, what kind of skills, traits are going to become increasingly important in the future of work? Well, I think there are two parts to this. And one part is that I'm convinced that well-being will become a business value of strategic importance. And that has implications both at an individual and an organisational level. For example, this current way of living and working that we're seeing with inadequate sleep, with unmanageable stress isn't sustainable. And we're seeing that in terms of the increase in prevalence of burnout. There's some interesting statistics about the billions of euros that work-related stress is estimated to cost the European economy. Work-related stress may be, according to some studies, responsible for a fifth of staff turnover. So in the future, we want to help people. And I think we're going to see the highest performing knowledge workers in environments, in organisations, but also with personal tools that help them to manage stress more adequately that help them to develop patterns which they can achieve more adequate sleep for example but it's important to note that that needs to be addressed at both an individual and organizational level just giving people individual tools isn't sufficient but then there's a higher level on this as well about what will be important in the future of work and one of the reasons i think seeing these kind of lifestyle shifts and well-being shifts is going to be crucial isn't just because it's the right thing to do and we want people to feel better and perform better and to be happier at work It also is about the skills and capabilities that we're actually going to need in the future of work. And so there's a lot of different opinions and perspectives and studies and some data that's more robust than others. But there's a good report published by McKinsey Global Institute a couple of years ago, which was looking at automation. And they suggest that in most human roles, 30% of the work could already be automated. But as a human performance scientist, that leaves me with the question, well, what will that other 70% be characterised by? And there's another report that was published by the World Economic Forum, which polled people about what kind of skills and capabilities are going to be increasingly important in the future of work. They're quite clear, and I'm inclined to agree that the human capabilities which are going to differentiate us and be increasingly important are things like creativity, complex problem solving, collaboration, But these capabilities are the output of the brain, which is rested, which is focused, which is in an environment that is engineered towards being able to concentrate, but also recover effectively. And so I think that we are going to see this shift towards these higher level cognitive capabilities, periods of intense focus, followed by periods of real recovery are going to be essential for us to be able to do the work that can't be automated. But that requires a conversation about what are humans really good at and what are machines good at. And how can we actually create systems where these two can work together more effectively? You spoke about sleep. And one of the things that I've written about briefly previously is using a type of libertarian paternalistic approach to try and nudge people into better decisions. Mm. And I know that Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein have written extensively about this. And interestingly, there was a report by the Rand Corporation published recently, and it suggested that if school start times were delayed in the US, I think in 47 states, the savings per year for the next 20 years would be $9.3 billion on average. Mm. So that I think really reinforces that important point absolutely and was it called the cost of inadequate sleep or something like that i think i might have read the same paper it is a really important point and that point about circadian rhythm as well i know you're much more of an expert in this than me but one of the things that i think is going to be increasingly important in the future of work is that we give more people the possibility to work in line with their rhythm and particularly their circadian rhythm but i think that one of the challenges with this is that many of us have got no idea what our inherent rhythm is because it's so chronically disrupted this idea of who's a morning type who's an evening type and who's somewhere in between i think a lot of us really have got no idea a lot of it's been driven by our environment But I think the evidence seems quite clear in particularly young people and teenagers, as you just alluded to, and that the RAND study highlighted 
we are forcing these young people to operate in a way which is contrary to the way that their brain and their body should be operating for optimal well-being and performance with the costs that are associated with that both personally and also at a national level. Yeah, and we will definitely circle back to many things that you just mentioned there. I'm particularly keen to get your thoughts on what our listeners can do to perform better at work. I know you're a competitive cyclist and that planning training cycles has shaped your approach to helping knowledge workers. Which concepts from the periodization of sports training have you drawn on when helping people optimise their knowledge work? First, a little clarification. I used to be a competitive cyclist a long time ago. <laughs> um, it's rapidly fading memory. So I raced full time for a few years. About 15 years ago, I moved to France to pursue my dream of becoming a professional cyclist, which is what you did back then if you were in the UK and you wanted to try and make it. I was fortunate enough to get on a good elite under 23 team, was able to ride full time. That was linked with a pro team, but never really quite made it. But during that time, that's where my interest and my passion for measuring and improving human performance first began to really grow and accelerate. When that didn't work out, I returned to the UK. I ended up studying sports science and then eventually set up my own coaching business. And most of the people that I coached were amateur cyclists. So they had very demanding jobs in London, near to where I was based. And then outside of that work, they also pursued very demanding cycling events. And during that time, three important things happened. And the first was that I became fascinated with the work day that these people were participating in. That was their day job. Because I saw that actually something was going on in the work day that was having a very significant measurable effect on their physical performance. And I started to try and dig into that. And one of the ways that I did that was to try and apply tools and frameworks from sports science to try and understand that knowledge work. Most of my clients were knowledge workers the work that these knowledge workers were engaged in. And one of the ways that I started to look at it was just by asking them how hard they felt their work day was. I could see that there was a very strong link between how hard they felt the day was and how hard they felt the session was and often how they performed physically in that session. And then when I started to think about knowledge work and the length of time that people worked for during the average day and, and what a career path looked like, I've had this revelation that knowledge work is a cognitive endurance activity. And as you alluded to, some of the frameworks from endurance sport may be able to be applied to try and understand knowledge work better and maybe distribute work in a more effective way. And I think really there's three principles from endurance sport that apply equally well to this cognitive endurance activity of knowledge work. And the first principle is that we can achieve better results for similar effort if we apply effort in the right place at the right time. If you were developing a performance plan for an athlete, even just focusing on a single event without thinking about a training program for a while, you'd deconstruct the profile, for example, if it was a cyclist, and you'd say, where's the point in this profile that you are likely to be able to make the biggest difference? If it was a client that you were working with who had a really good power to weight ratio, but they were quite light, and so that absolute power was relatively low, you'd naturally be looking at that course and you'd say, well, you're likely to be at your best where those climbs get steep, where the people who have got high absolute power but are a little bit heavier are probably going to struggle a bit. And you'd create a plan for their physical endurance based upon them being the best at that critical point in the race or the event. And I think there's a principle there in knowledge work where often cognitively we give our best hours to the most ineffective work. And if you go back to that rhythm idea, according to some research, about 20% of the population experience their day as a peak, a valley and a rebound. About another 20% seem to experience it in reverse as this rebound, valley and a peak. But regardless of where you are, often what we find is that those peak hours end up getting spent doing busy work. They end up getting spent doing emails and switching tasks rather than the work where they'd really make a difference and they could be at their best. So I think the first principle that I look at from endurance sport for improving knowledge work performance is this idea of pacing, you could call it, trying to achieve a better result with similar effort just by simply applying the effort in the right place at the right time. 
But there's a second principle as well, which I take from endurance sport, and that's that you need to recover even if you don't feel like it. This can be applied both in terms of a day, but also over time. So you mentioned periodization, this idea that we maybe work on specific capacities at specific points. But also one of the fundamental principles of periodization is that there are periods of overload followed by periods of recovery. And I think that one of the things that we see in knowledge work is that we fall into this trap of believing that we can always be on. And so rather than having these periods of focus and intensity followed by periods of recovery, we just get stuck in what I call cognitive middle gear, where we just maintain this moderate intensity continuously from very shortly after we wake up to very shortly before we try and go to sleep. One of the principles, just like with an athlete who may be, when you give them a rest week or a rest day, a highly motivated athlete often doesn't want to, especially earlier in their career when they're very enthusiastic and full of energy. And similarly with knowledge workers, maybe they want to take a break, but they feel like if they take that lunch break or they take that weekend, they just won't get the job done. Whereas actually, I think there's even some evidence to suggest that these breaks, there's some interesting perspectives on naps, for example, that suggest that the productivity gains, which could be achieved by taking breaks and naps, could more than compensate for the time that we take to recover. And so that second principle being the importance of recovery, even if you don't feel like you can recover. And finally, the principle from endurance sport that I think sums up those earlier two points and provides a bit of a meta-narrative for how I think about endurance sport linking to knowledge work, we need to find and follow our own rhythm. Just as an endurance athlete will start to learn over their career what parts of a course suit them best, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, when they're at their best. Even at a very micro level, thinking about the timing of training sessions for an endurance athlete, while most people will probably be at their strongest later in the day when their core body temperature starts to increase a bit, just recognizing where you are at your best and trying to find a way to synchronize the type of work you do with that rhythm. That'd be my summary, really. You can achieve better results for similar effort if you apply effort in the right place at the right time. We need to recover even if we don't feel like it and we need to find and follow our own rhythm and really start to pay more attention to when and where we're at our best. It's a very comprehensive answer. I suppose that it might be a good time for you to tell us about the three components of cognitive load in the framework that you use. One of the ways that I tried to operationalize that idea, those three components that I think apply from endurance sport to knowledge work is through a framework called cognitive gears. And it links with the idea of finding your own rhythm and that different parts of the day might be better suited to different types of work. That peak of the day being probably best suited to focus, to analysis and that really productive work. That valley in the day being better suited to rest, recovery and reflection. And that rebound in the day better suited to the menial tasks and the switching work, which we all have to do. But the progression from that is I thought, how do you give people some kind of heuristic to think about how they distribute their cognitive work? And the first step in that was I started to think about what is cognitive load? You can measure cognitive load in a number of ways. And probably one of the best ways is to stick an electroencephalogram on someone's head and do some EEG and pick up on the electrical activity of the brain. And you can actually infer cognitive load from that. But most of us aren't going to wear an EEG headset all the time. And so I came up with this heuristic, which is based upon a model called the cognitive task load model, which has been used quite a lot in the literature. And it's often used by observers who are trying to classify the cognitive load associated with a task, often in human factors research, where, for example, they might be looking at someone operating some kind of new system in an aerospace context, and they want to make sure people don't get overloaded and lock up and make bad decisions or not make decisions at all. And so basically, this cognitive task load model suggests that cognitive load is the aggregation from the interaction between three components. And those three components are time pressure, switching, and the complexity of the task. 
And so one of the things that I encourage people to do with cognitive task is to think about their day in the context of those three components and think about the phases of their day. How much time pressure are they under? How much switching are they engaged in? How complex are the tasks? And thinking about how you can periodize your day better could start with actually just thinking about, can you, for example, try to eliminate unnecessary switching, which we know should decrease load, but then also engage with those more complex tasks in the time of the day it's best suited to, ideally in the peak of your day. And with time pressure, time pressure is what it is, but actually it seems that there is a sweet spot for time pressure. And so try to avoid unnecessary time pressure but maybe create some positive pressure. And in that peak period, that could be using something like the Pomodoro technique, 25 minutes on, five minutes off. Or maybe with the switching work, it's actually about setting time boundaries so that that switching work and those menial tasks don't invade every moment of the day. That's a starting point. But to take it one step further, I came up with this cognitive gears framework, which is basically inspired by this idea of three intensity zones in endurance sport. And so I've defined these three cognitive gears as a low gear, a middle gear and a high gear. And if you imagine that that low cognitive gear is characterized by those times of rest, recovery and reflection, that high cognitive gear is characterized by times of focus, analysis and productivity. And that middle cognitive gear is characterized by the menial tasks and the switching work, which represent part of our day. But you mentioned this polarized model, and we know that in endurance sport, when they've done studies of the training intensity distribution of world-class endurance athletes, the distribution for many of them exhibits this starkly polarized model. They spend a lot of their time in this low intensity zone, maybe even 80%. They spend really focused time with this very structured high intensity work in intervals, for example. And then they spend a remarkably small amount of time in this middle zone, which is actually really in contrast to what a lot of amateur endurance athletes do. They poodle around in that middle zone all the time. And I I think there's actually something that we can learn from for knowledge work performance where actually we'd probably benefit from taking a more polarized approach to the distribution of cognitive work and spend increasingly amounts of time in low gear reflecting for example because we know that that reflection is going to be increasingly important for the kind of ideation and creativity that will differentiate us in the future of work and then also spend some really focused structured time probably more than we do in that high cognitive gear where we're focused where we're engaged in this kind of complex analytic work and we actually maybe do some of the production that was associated with that creativity and i think that most of us would probably agree that we could do with reducing time in that middle cognitive gear and reduce or at least compartmentalize those menial tasks and the switching work so that it doesn't leak into every moment of the day which i think many of us find it does i've got a question that might seem esoteric but i think is actually quite interesting while in the low gear the mind wanders and we often reflect on our lives and this mm. is associated with increased activity in the default mode network mm. now on one side there are people suggesting that activity in this network is important for things like restoration and creativity but then there are others such as john kabat-zinn the forefather of the science of mindfulness meditation who seem to suggest that we should seek to minimize activity in this network if we value our mental health Interestingly, practices such as mindfulness that quiet network activity are generally good for mental health and higher default mode network integrity has been associated with depression and rumination. What do you think about using practices such as meditation in place of spending time letting the mind wander? This is a really good debate, isn't it? Mm. My view personally is that we risk polarizing this argument and saying that default mode network bad and activities associated with mindfulness, for example, and uh, quieting of this activity good. 
And my inclination is to say that actually I think there's value in both and Mm -hmm. actually to try and polarise the argument, especially given, to be honest, I think the relatively limited knowledge that we have is a bit dangerous and is likely to compromise future research and maybe we should be taking a more interdisciplinary and integrative view. Personally, I'm inclined to think that there is value, certainly in idle time. One of the things I sometimes say is that idle time is not a waste of time. There's some evidence to suggest that this idle time where we're in a task negative state that seems to be associated with activity in the default mode network could be associated with some of these outputs that could be really important for our productivity, like creativity, for example. There's even some evidence to suggest that time in the default mode may be associated with how we process social emotions, for example. But you could see how this idle time could also be hijacked and become rumination. One of the constructs I'm actually quite interested in is work-related rumination, which was developed by someone called Professor Mark Cropley, and I'm actually working with him on my next study. And so work-related rumination being this perseverative thinking about work. I'm inclined to say maybe the issue isn't so much idle time or the activity of the default mode, but maybe more what is going on in our inner world during that time. And now I think it's great that mindfulness meditation is a tool that's available to quiet activity. And I think time spent engaged in practices which might be able to quiet some of that activity is likely a good thing. And there's some really good evidence to suggest why it might be a good thing. But the counter to that is there's also some evidence to suggest that some mindfulness meditation interventions actually seem to make some people more anxious. So by the same token, you could also say, well, maybe meditation is a bad thing. My view based on the balance of evidence at the moment is that both meditation and idle time or time in default mode can be good or bad things, depending on what's going on during that time, probably depending on the timing, depending on the context, depending on the individual. Idle time can become perseverative thinking about work and rumination, just as potentially meditation could increase anxiety for some people. And for me, this just highlights the fact that we still don't know a lot and we need to continue to explore this area rigorously to understand more about how individuals respond differently but also maybe even understand better dosing and timing. Again, in some ways, this parallels some of the work and research in sports science when we're thinking about training interventions. But as we know in sports science, one of the problems is training interventions are so difficult to do experimentally. We find that in psychology as well. The practical output for me as an individual and for individuals that we work with is I don't think there's a silver bullet. And one of the things that I'm resistant to is providing a message that suggests that any one intervention or approach is the solution to everything. And I think sometimes we risk polarisation as a way to deal with the complexity when actually I think we need to become a little bit more comfortable with the messy middle and try and find a way to navigate that both as researchers, but also to help clients and individuals that we might be working with navigate that complexity as well and come up with approaches which help them and also that we can actually measure Switching gears now back to the high gear, you've spoken about the parallels between endurance exercise and knowledge work. And it's interesting that it seems that an unusually large proportion of financially successful people gravitate to very strenuous endurance exercise in their leisure time. Mm. Do you think there's substantial overlap between the biological determinants of endurance in both exercise and the workplace? It's a really good question and something that I pondered upon and I think there's some interesting evidence for in some ways. 
if we talk about the biological determinants of high performance in knowledge work and high performance in endurance sport, if we look at improving your capacity to produce physical work over an extended period of time, we're improving our body's capacity to regenerate ATP, that energy currency of life. And we know that this energy currency of life, this ATP, is the energetic resource for everything, including thinking and brain activity. One of the things that could hypothesize is that improving physical endurance and our body's capacity to regenerate this energetic resource to both do the work and recover from the work, it's very plausible that that could carry over to improved endurance in knowledge work. The interesting thing about knowledge work and endurance sport is that it does seem that how hard we feel something is has a significant effect. For example, in endurance sport, rating of perceived exertion is this incredible integrator of all kinds of different signals and has very strong associations with our endurance performance. And actually, one of the things that is becoming increasingly clear about endurance training is that we become habituated to that feeling of working hard. It just becomes more normal. And so I think that there's potentially a crossover there. In terms of what's going on a neurological level or a psychological level, likely an integration of the two. If you think about endurance sport, you're relying on response inhibition because there's a primal part of your brain when you're out on a bike or you're doing a swim or you're doing a run, which knows that this is a pretty useless activity. You don't need to ride your bike for 100 miles. You're not doing it for your health and you're not doing it to go and find resources or escape from something. And so you have to manage this urge to stop with this high level goal of keep going. And I think that there's actually a plausible hypothesis there that we can increase our capacity to inhibit, to resist these pre opponent responses to stop when something feels hard and actually keep going towards a high level goal potentially that transfers to the same kind of effortful work that's required in knowledge work where sometimes we have to resist the urge to stop or to be distracted or to check our phone or to do whatever and to keep going towards that goal now in terms of the link between cognitive performance physical fitness and exercise there's been a lot published on this and I think that the strongest evidence is still in the capacity for this to have an effect in terms of the aging brain if we're physically fitter, if we improve physical fitness, it's likely that that can reduce or mitigate against some of the age-related declines in self-regulation, in executive control across our lifespan. There's some evidence to suggest that acute bouts of physical activity may be able to improve certain types of cognition. But there seems to be this underlying reciprocal relationship between physical activity and executive control. Executive control being a fundamental building block for high performance in knowledge work. So this fitness cognition link, I think, it's clear that it's there. There's also potentially these fitness enhancing effects on the brain in terms of brain derived neurotrophic factor. But again, quite a lot of the evidence of this is in aging populations. And I think we need to be a bit careful about suggesting whether it's going to help a 35 year old investment banker. But my view is that there's a plausible relationship there. It also helps that if you are in a high performance knowledge work occupation and you've been compensated well, you can afford the equipment in these sports. So we've got to be aware of that as a confounder. But I don't think there's really any downsides of trying to improve our physical fitness, likely for cognitive performance, but certainly just in terms of our longevity, our health and well-being. It's as if you were reading my mind during the early part of your answer, James. It's <laughs> a good sign, I hope. The reason being, I was thinking about work by the likes of Samuel Marcora, who's yep. shown that mental fatigue during endurance exercise increases perceived exertion and impairs endurance performance, suggesting that our capacities for mental work and endurance exercise draw on some of the same reserves. Have you thought much about combining exercise and cognitive load simultaneously? 
I've only thought about it because of Samuel McCurra's work and he did quite an interesting study with the British military where they combined exercise with a cognitively demanding task and then they found that the improvements in performance that they got in the group that did this cognitively demanding intervention plus training relative to the group that did just the training were significant and it seems that one of the effects there is that if you combine the cognitively demanding work with the physical training you actually make it feel harder than it would if you just did the physical training and so when you remove that extra load and you actually then test performance as an outcome the group that got used to this kind of doubly hard experience of training performed better and sometimes i've said to some clients listen to a complex podcast while you're doing your long turbo session you know and then maybe that's going to help you that's just so messy and n equals one but might as well try it and it's probably a placebo effect there time efficient as well so i think definitely this potential to combine these interventions for maybe improving physical performance and i think samuel mccurro's work is an indication that that could be a fruitful pathway to explore and it wouldn't surprise me it could be so simple especially in cycling where you're sitting on the turbo trainer to operationalize i think the problem is that the cognitively demanding tasks that you do are a bit tedious but on the other side of this can that combination improve cognitive performance and it's an interesting one isn't it because lecky found that brain derived neurotrophic factor mediated the effect when they did a walking intervention on task switching performance in an elderly population we see certain patterns of electrophysiological activity oxidated blood in the prefrontal cortex that are associated with better fitness and executive performance but whether there's a benefit from combining these at the very same time I don't know and that's the bottom line basically more research is required but I think it's an exciting area I'd love to see some people exploring this and, and seeing what the outcomes were and thinking about knowledge workers specifically who want to use physical activity to improve their brain function, do you have any thoughts mm. on how to optimise such physical activity in terms of the activities they do, the timing of activities, and also the context in which the activity is completed, so indoors versus outdoors, for example? Yeah, it's a good question. One of our challenges as amateur endurance athletes is that because we're time limited we often end up trying to look for the hacks and look for the little thing that we can do that's going to improve our performance and compensate for the fact that we have to work for 14 hours a day or whatever and that's why there's such a huge market for supplements few of which work and if you go to the kitchen cabinet of the average amateur endurance athlete you probably find way more supplements than you will in a professional athlete the bottom line is if you want to improve your physical performance in endurance sport consistency trumps almost everything you're better off to be consistent in your training than to worry about these tiny nuances and so with that in mind for knowledge workers trying to improve their physical performance often what i recommend in terms of the sessions is that they try and time the sessions when they're most likely to do them and complete them some of that is related to your physiological readiness we know for example you're probably better off doing intervals later in the day but actually for an endurance athlete who's also working hard often i find that it's more important to time those sessions when they can just face it mentally and for a lot of people that means doing intervals before work because while it's hard it's even harder if you wait to the end of the day when you've had a really hard stressful work day so often I encourage knowledge workers who are doing endurance sports, if their objective is improving endurance performance, then time that physical work when you're most likely to get it done and you'll be consistent and you'll get the training load you need to see the adaptations that you need. The flip side of that is how do you time things for optimal knowledge work performance? And there's two sides to this. One of the things that I often say to people as well is 
I've seen too many really enthusiastic amateur endurance athletes fall into these cycles of beating themselves up because they're in a really hard period of work and they feel like they should still be doing the really hard sessions leading up to this particular goal that they've got. And so they try and mix it all together and they end up just really overloading themselves, both psychologically and physiologically. And so one of the things I encourage knowledge workers to do are thinking about optimizing knowledge work performance is sometimes it's okay to compromise the physical component. Just remind yourself you're not getting paid for this. You're supposed to be doing this for fun. Sometimes that means maybe when you've had a really stressful week, rather than doing that six-hour endurance ride, you need to just do a two-hour recovery ride and sit in the coffee shop and talk to your friends for a bit. And that's fine. And actually, you'll probably end up performing better, even though it's an incredibly small sample size in terms of athletes that I've worked with relative to a research project. I've seen very good results. People have improved when they actually start to care for themselves a bit more and not be quite so hard on themselves. And over time, their training consistency is higher as a result of it. But in terms of the very, very specific timings and getting quite granular, some physical activity during the trough in your day, that valley in your day, seems to be very beneficial. And actually, there's some evidence to suggest that these brief bouts of high-intensity activity may be able to improve some aspects of cognitive performance. Practically, many of us would benefit from, as a minimum, drawing that valley in our day, getting some physical activity, which could be as simple as taking a walk outside. And even if that doesn't have some BDNF boosting effect, I think it will often make us feel better. And actually, positive mood is very strongly associated with cognitive performance as well. But if you did want to try a bit more of a potent tactic, if you go to the gym in your lunch break, for example, if you're lucky enough to get a lunch break, we probably all should have them. During that lunch break, if you're doing some kind of workout, hop on a bike or on a row machine and do a couple of 10 second sprints and see what happens. That's a very simple tactic. But again, even with that, sometimes we fall into this trap as endurance athletes in particular of thinking that it's not a two hour session, it's not worth it. When actually often I think that especially as amateurs who are also working, we need to just try and dial down our expectations slightly and say even 20 minutes is worth it. Do something, move more, maybe chuck a couple of sprints in there. And I think there's enough evidence that it's likely a good thing, once again, potentially in terms of cognitive performance, but certainly in terms of health. I think you made several critical points there. First, compliance is king. Second, I think that if you're going to look at circadian variation and cognitive performance, then perhaps the so-called post-lunch slump is the most pronounced effect. So mm. during that period when many of us feel sleepy, typically in the early afternoon, that's prime time to spend time in the low gear. And spending that time outside walking with friends is a great activity. And then one other thing that I thought that I'd add is just that many people spend their time sat at their desks. So if they're thinking about activities to break up those patterns, then it makes sense to engage in activities that counter some of those postures so if you're spending all of your time in hip flexion with your thoracic spine hyperflexed and with your cervical spine hyperextended then it probably makes sense to maybe do some mobility exercises to counter those postures it's a great point greg and it doesn't feel like proper work often doing some mobility exercises but it does make a difference and our friends at loughborough did a study published recently where they looked at standing desks and while it was reported that it didn't have a measurable effect on cognitive performance there were some really positive outcomes relevant to health and also mental health it seemed to have a significant positive impact on mood for example again i think that we can polarize the debate say well everyone needs to have standing desks and sitting is really bad but i think as you mentioned the key is to mix it up likely the best approach is that we're not holding any one posture for too long and breaking it up with some simple mobility seems to be able to improve our mood at the very least and likely has some positive outcomes for our musculoskeletal system as well for sure so other than physical activity and sleep what do you think are some key things people can do to boost cognitive load capacity in the long term 
probably one of the most effective things that many of us could do would be to find ways to manage our stress and to boost our mood. We know that there are so many negative outcomes associated with stress that's too high for too long, both in terms of health, but also in terms of cognitive performance. We can essentially hijack our high level cognitive capabilities with unmanageable levels of stress. There's some really interesting evidence that was mentioned in Harvard Business Review a couple of weeks ago, and it was a study that was led by someone called Mayer. And they suggest that learning activities seem to be able to buffer workers from the detrimental effects of stress. And interestingly, the data that I've just gathered that I'm working my way through saw some really interesting relationships in a construct called thriving. And one of the factors in that construct is related to learning. And we saw similar relationships with this learning factor and stress. I think that this is really important in terms of what we can do long term to improve well-being and performance cognitively, but also in terms of our health. And there's an argument, I think, that as well as this having a beneficial effect in terms of performance and well-being, essentially the ability to learn, relearn, unlearn, and perhaps perhaps learn faster than other people or machines is going to be the only sustainable competitive advantage in knowledge work. The top performers are going to be the people who can outlearn anybody else. If this learning and learning something new can also buffer us from stress, then I think that's a really meaningful and logical target for us to think about what can we do. The operationalization of this idea is really that we need to be committing to have dedicated time regularly, if not every day, then at least a few times a week where we're actually learning something new. And I'm very fortunate in my role that so much of my role is orientated around learning. And certainly my experience is that when I'm learning something new, it's one of the most rewarding parts of my day. Even if it's cognitively demanding, it fills me up and increases my capacity for the rest of the day. And so one of the things I'd encourage people to do is to invest more time in learning. The other side of this is we see these very strong relationships between mood and cognitive performance and the capacity that we have. Mood also seems to be linked with resilience and resilience was a construct that I measured in this recent research and unsurprisingly we see resilience being associated with stress and mood as well. And so as well as thinking about these basic behaviours, adequate sleep for example, We need to be thinking about what are we doing that is actually putting some energy back into the system. Resilience, if we define it as that capacity to bounce back from stress or trauma, a lot has been written in terms of positive psychology. But one of the things that I do think we should be investing in long term to increase our capacity and to improve our performance and our well-being is actively trying to build our resilience. And part of that is about a positive emotion and good relationships. And I think that I'm very pro-technology. Our smartphones and, and these other devices and technology more broadly, there's been some incredibly beneficial effects in terms of both work and life. But it does seem like we are seeing this increasing prevalence of things like depression and depression-related illnesses. And a lot of us aren't feeling very positive. Our mood isn't great. Some of this, I think, is maybe driven by the increasing isolation and this kind of fake interaction that we get through these devices sometimes. And one of the most powerful things that many of us could do would be to try and create some more time to build positive relationships in the real world and spend time with people long term. That's likely to have some really significant benefits, both in terms of well-being, but in terms of performance, we know that collaboration is going to become an increasingly important differentiator in the future of work and that creating diverse teams where we can pool our cognitive capabilities, where there is cognitive diversity, where there is security, which has been built by positive relationships and trust and mutual respect and empathy. Some would argue that they're very abstract concepts. But I think that if we want to achieve truly sustainable high performance at an individual level, at an organisational level, these are the kind of things that we need to be investing in to create the foundation for that.
I really enjoyed your answer there, James. And something that I've become more interested in recently is learning how to learn faster. I actually took the mm. Coursera course on learning how to learn. And one of the things that I came across was the Pomodoro technique, which you mm. mentioned earlier. Related to that, do you have any tips on how to overcome procrastination? <laughs> well, I'll just throw a complete wild card in the mix. What if procrastination isn't a bad thing? <laughs> There's some interesting ideas popping up that actually suggest that maybe procrastination could actually be useful. Adam Grant, the organisational psychologist, he's been a bit more vocal about this. He talks about it in a book called Originals and he published some stuff around it. I'm reluctant, again, to polarise and say that procrastination is a bad thing. One of the things I would say, though, is many of us are probably procrastinating at the wrong time and maybe in the wrong context. We can look at it through the lens of this cognitive task load and also this cognitive gears model. Because it seems like, for example, when you want to get that high gear productivity work done, that is likely not the time to procrastinate. If I need to start writing up a paper, which I'm doing at the moment, there is this temptation to procrastinate because it's hard to start writing a paper and to start to structure it. It's effortful. But what I do is I've created this rhythm where I know where my high gear periods are. For me, it's early in the morning. And so I make sure that when I wake up, I start the day on my schedule on days when I'm trying to start with this high gear work. And so very practically, that means that I have a morning routine and then I don't check my email. I don't check social media. I actually just go from waking up, I get my coffee, and then I start work during that peak period. So I think that a key to avoiding procrastination at the wrong time is to try and synchronize that high gear work, which requires you not to procrastinate, with the peak period in your day. Because I think during that time as well, you're most likely to be able to resist the urge to procrastinate. The key is to resist procrastination. It has to become a habit. You've got to create these automatic patterns because the evidence is pretty strong in terms of behavior change that whenever we rely on self-control too much, we generally fail. And generally what we're relying on to resist procrastination is self-control. And so it's really about trying to create these habits and routines for that high gear work, which is probably one of the most powerful things we can do to resist procrastination. The flip side of this is that it does seem that sometimes some procrastination might be useful in terms of ideation. And maybe by procrastinating, the ideas that emerge or processed during that procrastination time at a subconscious level might help us to actually achieve a better outcome in the end, as opposed to if we just leapt straight into it, which is one of Professor Adam Grant's suggestions, which is investigated. But with that in mind, one of the things I'd say to people is during that rebound in your day, we're actually more likely to procrastinate anyway. Actually, our inhibitory control is slightly reduced anyway. That kind of reduced inhibition, which we exhibit during that rebound period, might make us more open to insights. So I think give yourself permission to procrastinate, but maybe try and synchronize the procrastination with the rebound in your day, if that's possible. One of the most unhelpful times to procrastinate, probably after and perhaps even equal to procrastinating when you should be in the high gear time, is that instead of just getting serious about recovery, we procrastinate and often mess around on social media. The lunch break or the brief break which might be a 15-minute coffee break where you could have got a coffee and maybe rested. You could have meditated if you that kind of personality and it works for you. You could have enjoyed some default mode time if that doesn't make you ruminate. Or you could have had a great conversation with somebody for 10 minutes. Instead of having that time, we procrastinate about having the conversation or doing the thing. And instead, we fill it with this kind of pseudo work, which is checking email again, refreshing, scrolling, repeating in search of the surprise and the dopamine hit. And it essentially sticks us in that middle gear and we don't really rest properly. So much of sustainable high performance for knowledge work and looking at how we can improve well-being and performance is really about thinking about timing and the distribution of intensity, very much like we'd approach it with an endurance athlete. James, you're making me feel better about procrastinating. 
Good. Yeah, I, I think when I read it, I felt the same way. And we've got to be careful of that confirmation bias. But mm. I think that there's something there. Once again, let's not fall into the trap of taking extreme positions about what's good or bad, certainly until we've got a bit more information. And just to add something, I know I've been susceptible to structured procrastination previously, during which I just tick easy tasks off the to-do list first. And while I was writing my PhD thesis, I would just hit blocks occasionally and I would go for a walk eventually I'd sit back down at my desk and be able to write again. And actually, I think in retrospect, that was really important to me. Anyway, returning to something that you mentioned earlier, digital devices, one idea that's come up in recent years, probably since Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, is that of ego depletion, the idea that we have a finite willpower capacity. I know there's contention over whether ego depletion really exists, but since you're so interested in the effects of digital devices on productivity, do you have any tips to help people modify their use of these devices to reduce the number of decisions they have to make each day? The ego depletion theme is a really interesting one. And I think that Roy Baumeister, who is most famous for researching and coining a lot of the phrases and the ideas around ego depletion, has had a really hard time when those experiments have failed to replicate in many cases. But the problem is, again, there's definitely something there in terms of decision fatigue and this idea that self-control is a finite resource during the course of a day. I think one of the reasons why that idea got so much traction is that it does resonate with us. One of the perspectives that has been quite helpful for me as I've started to look into behaviour change and ego depletion and self-control is this idea that actually it seems that self-control, and if we use self-control and willpower interchangeably here for the ease of communication, so when we rely too much on willpower and self-control, we generally fail. But it actually seems that self-control operates more like a valuation process than this kind of finite resource. There's some evidence behaviourally where it seems that when you can influence someone's motivation, perhaps through reward, you seem to be able to replenish the self-control resource. And in terms of neuroscience, there's some evidence to suggest self-control might be a value-based choice where we see that there's this region of the brain called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex that might be associated with calculating the return on investment of the effort required by a task. So in terms of how this relates to our use of devices and smartphones, one of the challenges is that a lot of the experiences that we have with a smartphone are taking advantage of our dopaminergic system and they're creating very powerful cycles of reward. It feels very rewarding and the reason why we refresh, we scroll, we repeat when we're refreshing email or a social media feed is that we're looking for the surprise, we're looking for the thing that's new that will give us that dopamine hit. But actually, even the anticipation of the novelty of a new email message appearing, of the new items, the new Twitter feed, the new posts that appear, or new Slack messages even if you go into Slack, even if there's nothing new there, just the anticipation means that your brain will secrete dopamine. So I think that to actually try and address this, we need to first accept that these experiences are pleasurable and highly rewarding. And that as a consequence of the fact that they are pleasurable and highly rewarding, regions of the brain associated with this dorsal anterior cingulate cortex falsely create the assumption that there is a high return on investment, especially given the effort associated with it, because it's so effortless to just scroll, repeat in search of a surprise. And so somehow we've got to try and interrupt that process. And my experience has been that we cannot rely on self-control. My experience and the evidence would back that up, that if we want to interrupt this dopamine-driven loop, then we need to stop beating ourselves up and just accept that this is likely being driven by some very deep processes. And actually, we need to just get more assertive about removing the devices from us or us from the devices. 
in practice that can mean switching off devices it can mean putting them away in a drawer when you walk to the coffee machine intentionally leave your phone in a drawer in your desk or put it in a backpack or a bag that you're carrying rather than in your pocket so that when you walk to your next meeting or whatever you're not looking at your phone some evidence would suggest that we check in on our communication tools once every six minutes and i think that's about right and i see myself sometimes i travel a lot with my role a lot of my role involves walking around between meetings between places and, and i'm walking along i try and walk places rather than get the tube if i'm in london for example i actually live uh, just about half an hour from geneva but i go to london quite a lot and often i walk 20 minutes rather than get the tube and if i'm walking 20 minutes i know that urge to pull out my phone comes at least twice on the way to that meeting i'd better check if an email's come the last 20 minutes how ridiculous is that and actually for me the only way for me to actually enjoy that 20 minute walk and resist the urge i have to put my phone in the bag that i'm carrying because there's a sufficient effort required that my brain says i'll calculate the return on investment if it's in my pocket the return on investment for the effort required to pull out my phone is so small because it's right there the brain is incredibly complex but in some ways its decisions are so basic if the thing is in my bag walking along having to unzip the bag and pull out my phone my brain says it's not worth the effort and so actually i think that the best way we can probably start to manage uh, phone use to fixate on smartphones in particular better is actually we need to manipulate our environment and we need to increase the effort that is required to access the novelty on those devices whether that's putting the phone in a physical place whether it's lockouts whether it's something else because even things like rescue time, which monitor phone use, mm -hmm. you just create justifications. I think we've got to create some physical barriers. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck. That would be my practical advice based on my experience and what the literature seems to be saying. I've gotten the habit of keeping my phone on airplane mode in a different room, and that seems to do the trick for me. Other than not using your phone immediately on waking up, do you have any other tips on how to start the day on the right foot? So I used to say starting the day with email is starting on someone else's schedule. But then I was challenged on that because a guy that I've done some work with is very much of the evening type, an owl. And he was saying waking up and he's a big fan of inbox zero. If I wake up and start my email, I can get to inbox zero before I've had my first coffee. He just feels that that is a great way to start his day because then he feels that his mind is free to actually get on with the interactions, the meetings, the meaningful work that he wants to do. So again, I'm a bit resistant now to actually saying to everyone, don't start the day with email because it does seem to work with some people. But I do think, again, we need to start approaching life and work a bit more experimentally, both organisationally and individually. And by that, I mean, commit for a period of time, maybe two weeks, to be more intentional about monitoring your rhythms of work and rest when you feel at your best. Pay attention to how you feel when you wake up in the morning, ideally when you've got adequate sleep. It's a bit of a tangent, but I think many people think they're evening types just because they feel so awful in the morning because they've not slept enough. But ideally, achieve adequate sleep, pay attention to those rhythms and start the day on your schedule. And so that's probably my best piece of advice. Pay attention to when you are at your best and try and start that first 20 minutes of the day on your schedule, filling it with the activities which are going to set you up best for your day. There's some incredibly powerful messages that are coming out that suggest that everybody needs to start their day with at least 20 minutes of meditation, ideally done before 5.30 a.m. You need to be in the gym doing heavy weights, immediately followed by a ketogenic kale shake. And, um, and if you're not, are you really serious about your performance? I won't give this podcast an explicit label by saying what I think of that perspective, but undoubtedly it works for some people. And so if you are the person who does 20 minutes of meditation before 5.30 and is straight in the gym, followed by your ketogenic kale shake, then fantastic for you. And I know people who do this and it works exceptionally well for them. So I'm not criticizing that approach in and of itself. What I am criticizing is this idea that 
this is the recipe for success because it's not for everybody. And if one thing that has become clear out of some of the research that I've read and some of the research that I'm doing is that there is a high degree of individual difference. There are some underlying principles. I think sometimes we can overstate the difference between human beings, but actually we need to start to deconstruct when we're at our best, pay better attention to it and create patterns that really suit the kind of lifestyle and work patterns which are going to underpin our sustainable high performance rather than just being driven by the latest trends and the blog posts about my daily schedule on Business Insider. It's unlikely that those people are actually following that anyway. James, you forgot microdosing LSD. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that, there was this great article in the Financial Times a few months ago, and I've quoted it in some of my presentations. It was fantastic because they interviewed this guy called Paul, probably not his real name, who's a startup founder from New York. And in this article, he was talking about how he and his team felt more creative and focused and even less stressed since they started microdosing with LSD. But the Financial Times, being really deadpan, continued to interview Paul, and Paul revealed that he actually couldn't be sure about the cause and the effect between microdosing and these positive outcomes. Because at the same time as they started microdosing, they also started using the project management system Asana, and maybe Asana was responsible for these positive outcomes. If we can't tell the difference between a software as a service and a psychedelic substance, we're not addressing the root cause of the problem. And I think that story really sums up where we're at often at the moment. We're looking for the hacks and the quick fixes where consistency, compliance to the basic boring behaviours is probably actually going to be the key to sustainable high performance in the long run. Just as an aside, I had the great privilege of speaking to Robin Carhart-Harris last week and I asked him about microdosing LSD and he just said that we really don't know much about it at the moment. It's interesting. Sometimes they use a very low dose for a control group and right now there's not really much evidence showing that it does anything, but partly that's because it just hasn't been studied as yet. Yeah, let's wait and see. More research required. Thinking about the other side of things, what strategies can people use before bed to set them up for the next day's work? You're probably better equipped to answer this than me, sleep being one of your specialist areas. But I think that the evidence is quite clear that melatonin and its concentration in our body is very strongly associated with circadian rhythm. And that actually, we can screw up our circadian rhythm and processes associated with melatonin secretion by exposing ourselves to bright light. It's probably not going to come as a surprise to anybody listening to this that one of the best things that we can do to improve the quality and the duration of our sleep, but also avoid disrupting our circadian rhythm more than it's already disrupted is to try and have as big a time window as possible before going to sleep where we're not looking at electronic screens which are emitting that blue light that's just tricking our brain into thinking that the sun is coming up some people say well we can use blue light blocking glasses i'd be interested to hear whether you've read anything but i've not seen an awful lot of academic evidence where they've actually explored that as an intervention i think let's try and create a buffer before we go to sleep when we're not using our devices but even just in terms of our mindset it seems like one of the things that really helps people to get to sleep is having some kind of ritual and i travel a lot in my job last year i did over 150 flight segments and this year i've already done something like 70 something flights this year and so i spend between two and four nights a week in a hotel if not more and so it's very difficult to establish a routine but i do have a routine even then and for me one of the most helpful things is when i get to the hotel room if i've got off a flight i try to limit my light exposure not just from devices but just generally on the way and when i get to the hotel room i'll try and avoid that situation where every light in the room comes on when you 
walking. And then for me, my routine involves reading some fiction before I go to sleep because that takes me away from thinking about work and transports me to a different imaginary realm. And so, and then another practical one that I found quite helpful for me, and I think there's some evidence to back it up as well, is thinking about temperature and the temperature of the room, which in hotels is often difficult to manage, but easy to set up at home. Unfortunately, two of the big ones, which I know are really effective, but sometimes not so happy about, is avoiding caffeine for as long as possible before sleep. And similarly, avoiding alcohol for as long as possible before sleep, because caffeine has a long half-life, about five hours. So you have a few coffees, even if you stop at 11 a.m., there's still some caffeine circulating in your bloodstream. I'm not saying don't drink coffee anymore, but try and create as big a buffer as possible, stopping caffeine intake before you go to sleep. If you think you're immune to it, it's very likely you're just deceiving yourself. You've just got used to that effect. And then also with alcohol, we know that alcohol disrupts sleep architecture. And obviously there's a dose dependent relationship there. So the gold standard, if you're trying to get an amazing night of sleep, would be to avoid alcohol completely. But certainly if you're drinking before sleep, just accept that there's a cost associated with that. And so practically, I would say if you're going to drink in the evening, make sure you drink something good because it better be worth it because your sleep is going to be affected. I agree with all of that. And I know you're short on time. So rather than me elaborating on some of my thoughts, I'll email you shortly after this, James, and I'll just direct listeners to the QNOS blog because I think that I've written about all of those things previously. So a couple of questions to finish. You're an excellent public speaker. Do you have a pre-talk routine and do you have any tips for people who are petrified of public speaking? <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate your encouragement. And the interesting about public speakers, I've been doing it for quite a while. I still feel like I'm quite early in my speaking career, but I have had some success in that and I've got some really good feedback. But often what you hear from people when people give you feedback is, oh, James, you're a really excellent public speaker. You're really talented. And I think there's no doubt that in any kind of skilled performance, there is some level of gifting associated with it. If it's endurance sports, it's VO2 max, which has got a huge genetic component. If it's public speaking, I'm not actually sure what the gifting component is, but there's likely there's something there. It seems to be easier for some people to get good at it than others. But I do think that the biggest thing with public speaking is it is a skill that you acquire and that you can improve. And so one of the best things that I'd advise people to do if they want to get better at public speaking, especially if they've got fears associated with it, is to get some coaching, whether that's through reading some books, talk like TED for example that's a good intro with some great communication techniques whether it's actually getting some formal coaching just learn the skills because you're not necessarily a bad public speaker you might have just not learned how to do it yet and often I think we find that when our skills improve anxiety associated with that performance can reduce because we can focus more on the process we learn to trust that we've got what it takes I do have a pre-performance routine for public speaking and it's not really elaborate. One of the things that I do is that I make sure that I've talked a bit before I do the presentation. So if I'm doing a presentation in the morning, for example, if you're not careful, you barely talked at all before you actually get on stage and you end up sounding a bit croaky. And also it is a muscular performance. There are muscles in your mouth and your tongue and in your neck and your shoulders and your lungs. And so I make sure that I've been active, even if that's just a walk before I talk. And that I've made sure that I've said a few different things. And it sounds ridiculous, but I do a little vocal warm up. I actually do a few tongue twisters. You can do an N equals one experiment. Do that tongue twister, say it once, say it again, say it a third time, you get better. And then when you actually try and speak, you actually speak more clearly. You can enunciate more clearly. But again, these are things I got trained to do through some coaching. But I think for me, the most important part of my pre-performance routine, I'd recommend to people, especially if they have a fear associated with public speaking, is start by remembering that the primary objective of public speaking is to serve the audience. You're not there to look good. 
You're not there to make people like you. You're there to serve them, to inform them, to entertain them. They've given you your time and take the focus off yourself and think about how you can engage and that you're there to serve that audience. But secondly, when I stand in front of a group of people, I always rehearse a little phrase to myself in my head when I stand in front of that group of people. And I say, everybody likes me. Everybody is really interested in what I've got to say. Because it doesn't matter if that's not true. But assuming that's not true is awful, isn't it? So you might as well assume until you've got more information that everybody likes you and everybody is really interested in what you've got to say. And tell yourself that and believe it because it will completely change your delivery. And I see so many people who get up in public speaking context and they stand at the front and they start with some kind of apologetic thing about I hope I don't talk for too long and and some kind of self-deprecating thing. And self-deprecation is all good at some point in a presentation. But just start there and know that you are there with something important to say that people are interested in that people like you they wouldn't be sitting there if they didn't want to hear from you you're there to serve them and assume good assume positivity assume interest and you'll probably find that your delivery will be better you'll be more relaxed and people tend to reflect what they perceive and so if they see you coming with this kind of open mind with this positive attitude there to serve them assuming the best from them it just changes the dynamic and i've consistently found that that has been a really helpful tool for me to try and keep improving communication, which is a skill that I'm really committed to continuing to develop. That's such great advice. Finally, what's one question that you think is really important that you wish that you were asked more often and why is it so critical? (laughs) Maybe I wish I'd said the time for no more questions. Um, that's That's a tough one. I'm just endlessly curious. I know I've talked a lot in this podcast, but I think my biggest value and strength, I'd suggest, is curiosity. My preference is often to go and ask other people questions and see what I can learn. And often the communication that I do is an expression of that. But when people ask me questions, the question that I'm often asked, which actually I wish I wasn't asked so much to flip it on its head, is actually what is the hack or the quick fix or the supplement that I can take to improve my performance? And I just get it so much. And I think that the reason it frustrates me is not because of where the individual is coming from because I think it's very natural for us to take that approach it's basically an indication that our scientific communication I think the communication around human well-being and performance is so skewed and so unhelpful often because we've kind of created a culture and a mindset that is looking for the answer in a pill or a potion or a hack the fact that people ask it so much says that we've got quite a lot of work to do in terms of approaching human well-being and sustainable high performance as a series of practices where small good decisions accumulate over time. And unfortunately, that's not as sexy and it's not as easy to productize. And I think it's probably a bit utopian to think that people are going to start walking up to me and asking me that question. I know I've not answered your question directly, but the question I'd like to hear less of is what is the hack or the quick fix? And if we start to hear that a little bit less, then I think we're probably moving in the right direction. You're a man after my heart. (laughs) James, where can people find more of your work online? A good place to start would be the company that I work with. So I work with a company called Hintza Performance that tries to help to improve well-being performance at an individual and organisational level. And there's a website, H-I-N-T-S-A.com. That's Hintza.com. I've also got my own website where you can read some more of my thoughts and blogs and there's some downloads that some people might find helpful. And that website is jameshewitt.net. And so you spell that, James h-e-w-i-t-t dot net and then you can also find contact details and more information about speaking i regularly speak at events and so i'm always open to those possibilities and then twitter is a good place to connect as well james p hewitt on twitter and i'd love to hear some of your listeners thoughts and reflections and questions and challenges please feel free to connect with me on twitter i'd be more than happy to continue this conversation you've been very generous with your time james thanks so much and keep up the great work thanks greg it's been a pleasure speaking with you 
Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.